Hello, I'm Andrew Mayle, and you're listening to the Mojo Record Club, a place where music lovers, musicians, crate diggers, writers, readers, and special guests get to share their love for classic albums, weird lost gems, and brand new revelations. My guests today are Mojo editor John Mulvey, plus, I am honored to say, Ira Kaplan and Georgia Hubley of the great Yola Tengo, who are speaking to us via Zoom from their home in New York. Hello, all. Hello. Hi. Hello. Now, without wishing to embarrass them unduly, Ira and Georgia have for almost 40 years, not possible, but for almost 40 years, they have fronted one of the finest American three pieces of all time, with albums such as 1995's Electric Pura, 2000's And Then Nothing Turned Itself Inside Out, 2018's Superb, There's a Riot Going On, and their most recent release, the utterly thrilling and electrifying This Stupid World. This repeatedly innovative and eclectic Hoboken, New Jersey trio have made albums that hypnotize, haunt, and dazzle like no one else. I'm not going to say much more other than to play a little bit from This Stupid World. This is the gorgeous, melancholy, a Celestine. And I'm thinking, I'm just going to read all of this. The Mojo Record Club. You're listening to the Mojo Record Club. <laughs> no, so it's really just say your name and you're listening to the Mojo Record Club. With me, Georgia Hubley of Yola Tango. Correct? <laughs> Georgia, Ira, it's really lovely to have you on the show. And thank you for, you've both basically chosen different records to talk about today. And first off, um, Georgia, you've picked... Catch a Fire, the 1973 studio album by the Whalers. Um, I suppose the first question is, what was your reason for choosing that album? Um, well, I needed to choose one. <laughs> <laughs> you did. That was that was a prerequisite. You are correct. <laughs> exactly. Um, I don't. It's funny. It just popped into my head because um, I was thinking, what's a record that I I could just I could sing along with with every note of it almost because I, I, um, I think I picked that record up when I was a teenager. I was a big fan of, of Bob Marley. I actually think I had, um, the other record, Naughty Dread. Is that what that record's called? And, um, but then I got Catch a Fire. So I was about 15 and I was a huge fan. And for some, so it's one of those records you know, that you just have your whole life in, in your brain, you have it. And, um, and I thought that was significant in, in that um, it's just part of my life, even though I don't, it's not like I've even listened to it all that recently, but, but if I did, I would just know it so well. It just, just, you know. And we should, I mean, let's hear a little bit from the record. We're going to play a little bit. Let's, I mean, let's just play the opening track. There's sweetly, minimalistic yet powerfully political concrete jungle written by right. Bob Marley and um, released on Island Records. I say that life is- 
say, Georgia, you know it incredibly well. It's ingrained. But was this, I mean, you were sort of saying that kind of Bob Marley is somebody that you were kind of listening to as a teenager. What was your first exposure to his music? What would have been the first record that you heard? Uh, probably um, the, the second big release, which is that Burning? Burning? Is that a record? Burning, yeah. Yeah. I think that one. And then... Um, I you know it's hard to remember because it's so long ago and I'm sure it was some friends who were who had discovered him and uh and at the time he was he wasn't huge yet but he was becoming so <laughs> and I oops sorry um and uh yeah it just was one of those teenage things where I was super super big fan of him and what was uh, it i mean because i was listening to the this going back and listening to the, this record and one of the things that really strikes me going back to it is how incredibly low-key it is it's kind of very restrained very subtle and kind of even the the more political tracks there's a kind of sweetness yeah. to them, a kind of low-key sweetness to the whole album mm-hmm. i agree yeah i think it's a very it's a it's i hate to use that word but i think it's very easy to listen to that sort of anytime you felt felt like it i was just reading before this interview and now i've already forgotten his name that because one of the i think besides the songs and the and the lyrics um the guitar playing is always what really gets gets me and the solos, mm. especially Concrete Jungle, that's one of my favorites. And I just finished reading that that um, somebody, uh, what is his name, from Alabama, re-recorded all the solos. But maybe that's not right, so we're going to have to look that up. <laughs> so Wayne Perkins. Yes, thank you, Wayne Perkins, yes. Who I don't really know who that is. I, I should, but... Um, because I suppose there's two yeah. versions. There's two versions of the album, isn't there? There's the version that Bob Marley and Peter Tosh and Bunny Whaler recorded in Jamaica, right? And then there's a version with the overdubs that Chris Blackwell kind of brought people in and kind of made it more commercial or sweetened it up for. Oh wow! Okay. Well, I have. Um, I did. I do have the original uh, Zippo. Yeah one which i don't know which where the old which one is diff, you know which is the that's later the one, one. that's the one that came out on island records but they brought yeah. out a cd a couple of years ago that's got that version on but also the version without the overdubs you know so oh, it's kind wow. of it's, it's kind of it's stripped yeah. it's much more stripped back much more cleaner but also it kind of there's a there's a sweetness to the the overdubs that kind of is really nice so it was kind of I was one. I was. I was wondering whether you'd heard them both, and was kind of wondering what might have been your favorite. But oh. I'm guessing. So that's, <laughs> we're gonna that have is, to do but, this interview again. No, but that is, no, 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 because that's something you can go away and do after this and listen yeah. to the other version. Because because uh, I I think I have that CD also. So now I am gonna. But you know, it's funny because all those, all those sounds are in my head. So now yeah. I have to see if how different they are. Oh wow! It will be like it will be like um, the. Um, God, what's it like? the unplugged version right. of it? <laughs> the, clo- the closet mix the closet, the closet mix, mix yeah 
I hate to tell you this, Andrew, but uh, you think it was two, a couple of years ago. I think it was 2001 when that. It's like that's a couple of that years ago. That's, 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 oh, quite, yeah. that's quite recent. Anything, <laughs> okay. anything within the anything within the two thousand catchment area is quite. It's recent. a couple of years. You know, yeah. you know that. You know. Yes, that is <laughs> well, absolutely true. <laughs> well, one of the things I was going to ask you, and I can. And this is probably a question for Georgia and Ira. I mean, certainly on this album, the Whalers are a kind of perfect sort of tight knit trio. And they're making this very laid back, easeful music, and it's but with a bittersweet edge. So I guess the point I'm edging towards asking is mm. whether either of you would consider them an influence on Yola Tango. I've never thought about that before, <laughs> which I should have, because probably I would have guessed that this question was coming. <laughs> but maybe I, maybe subliminal, subliminally. Yeah, maybe because they're so sort of, as you say, they're so deep within your kind of DNA since childhood and you kind of, and all those kind of melodies and that kind of yeah. quiet laid back quality is right in there. Could be. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's the, the, really the only interesting way that, I, the only way I'll consider that word influence is is the things that just creep in without you noticing it the idea of like you know i was listening to this record and now we're going to imitate it on our record <laughs> you know that's which i think is typically what that question is leading towards it never that doesn't seem like influence that seems like something else but that is a part of george's life and and a part of her wanting to become a musician in that in a in a way that can't be quantified or expressed i think that's precisely an influence and i suppose similarly it's kind of something that a listener comes at complete differently and so i'll be you know sitting and listening to catch a fire and kind of and picking up on similarities and i don't have a word for that or to discuss that other than the word influence so i'll kind of you know I'll come up, come in with that word, you know, where maybe all I should be really saying is I hear similarities in the sound mm -hmm. and I'm, you know, I'm wondering where they would come from. And, you know, as you say, whether they're subliminal rooted in childhood, rooted in being a teenager. And it's kind of, it's more likely that the listener is going to hear that than the musicians like yourselves, perhaps. I was thinking about something else when about georgia hearing this as a teenager and it being such a social thing and wondering if if that is the way people are I, I have the sense that people now are just on their phone and on their devices discovering things by themselves and i'm sure there's there remains a big social aspect to it but but so much of the music that i heard in high school and and Georgia's describing that is is all about your friends and your and 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 sometimes they're not even your friends they're just the people you know who care about music and discovering things together uh and it it feels so different than what goes on now i suppose though because obviously especially with a group like yola tango who are you know, adept at the art of the cover version, you know, and kind of in a very kind of vocal in their 
love of other groups and kind of so therefore you know i'm now trying to talk about this and resist using the word you know influence because obviously you know there are ways in which you kind of would say you know here's here's all these songs that we like by other people who we're covering and things like that so there is definitely with you a kind of a way in which you do wear your quote unquote influences on your sleeves on your sort of lapels at certain times well it it, I mean, again, part of running, I and mean, we've been running from that word for a long time, yeah. and and uh, it seems like it it started or ramped up in 1990 when we put out Fake Book, yeah. And you know, we had to just keep insisting that you know, Cat Stevens is not one of our favorite <laughs> artists, nor nor are the Tremolos, but there was just something about that's about here comes my baby and and the way we felt uh singing it that that resonated with us so that you know there's a a a big difference between you know it's just not literal it's not a tribute to uh, you know our favorite songs it's just something that that in the moment we we it's like a i mean we we do this thing on wfmu every year where we play we try to play requests that people who donate to the station make and we try to do it in practically real time and it's it's the three of us and our friend bruce bennett and it's a train wreck every year and <laughs> hopefully an entertaining one <laughs> but 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 the thing that that's really um emotional about it is it, it's like uh i always think of the the um the Minutemen line, you know, our band could be your life. I mean, this is, we're just expressing an entire lifetime of listening to music in three torturous hours of, <laughs> of butchering cover songs. Uh, and, and so the, and that's, I don't know, that's, that's meaningful. And, and to me, that's where, you know, whether it's influence or osmosis or, um, but it's, it's not the literal, uh, a b c yeah process maybe maybe the sheer weight of songs that you've covered by virtue of those music marathons and also in your live gigs and the and um you know the condo fox records as well as the fake book records and that um maybe just the sheer range and number means that it's it's now impossible to talk about influence because you can't possibly have been influenced by quite as much as that <laughs> <laughs> True. <laughs> I think the other thing as well that's maybe worth mentioning and kind of and that maybe this comes from reading about when you talk about you know how you play and how you record is that sense of like of pleasure of just like refracting these kind of songs through the prism the lens of Yola Tango and seeing what comes out the other side for sure <laughs> uh you know and 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 in other I mean not just the cover songs but we we recently completed our our Hanukkah shows, which we do a lot, where we play all eight nights of of the of the Hanukkah holiday with a completely different lineup of performers playing, you know, sharing the stage with them, and and then we almost always end up literally sharing the stage with them and having inviting them to come up and in a extremely hastily thrown together manner see what would happen if uh they, they, you know this year uh if if steve shelley sat in on drums for an entire night 
or on a different night, uh, we had um, Ryan Sawyer, Bill Nace, and Lee Ronaldo sit in for an entire show, and, and including with them showing up and not realizing that we wanted them to play 12 songs with us, you know, and, and we were going to spend 45 minutes rehearsing that and and just see what would happen and it and it's 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 exciting for us i hope for people mm -hmm. listening but certainly for us it is i suppose that maybe the flip side of the question as well um ira and georgia is there kind of like is there music that you love that you'd never go near and never cover because oh, you yeah. just, <laughs> because you think well you know it's it's not bound up in the same idea that we were talking about. And you just thought kind of, I mean, maybe, you know, one reference point would be Bob Marley, but I think you have covered no woman, no cry. <laughs> well, it wasn't our idea. <laughs> and, and, and I think, you know, it's funny, Georgia just said, you know, Oh yeah. But, but I think if this interview had taken place 20 years ago, some of those songs that George is saying, oh, yeah, to we would have subsequently done. I mean, I, th I think at a certain point, the notion of covering a Sun Ra song would have seemed inconceivable. Yeah. And then we get more shameless and, <laughs> you know, uh, and just sort of find our way into things that we never thought we could because I'm with, I'm with Georgia, the, the idea of, of, outside of the FMU uh, request um, scenario, uh, the idea of covering a reggae song seems almost inconceivable, but only because we haven't conceived of it yet. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> well, and then there's also, there's there's music that, that you love to listen to, but it's not that you want to, actually play it or it seems way too complicated to try to play you can just hum along with it in your car <laughs> what would be what would be a good example Georgia? i know I, um <laughs> well i know there's um a couple i'm sure we have tried to play i'm sure we have played a bad finger song here and there but those songs a lot of them are just Oh man, that's too many chords. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, big sounding or whatever. But um but yeah, there's 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 tons of tons of and tons of goofy songs that you enjoy listening to, but um Georgia, when you um when you were choosing this record for this uh, podcast, yeah. Um, were you were you conscious of choosing something that uh, that wasn't part of your kind of covers repertoire? That, right. that was something from kind of to the side, I suppose. I think I think kind of what I was alluding to before. It just sort of popped into my head. You know, when you think about if someone says, "What's your favorite record?" You know, you can't answer that. But um, so it must it it did also just. I just want I guess I was thinking about well what's what's a, a record that um that I can't even really talk about. I mean I didn't even discover all this stuff and now I've learned all all these new things about the record. But it just was so deep. It just was well what did I love when I was, you know, I mean I almost picked an Al Green record cuz I was also a slave to to one to a couple of those records and um so something that was just so far 
back in in your in your life that it just stayed with you forever and just um, an al green would have also been rooted in kind of life as a teenager and kind of and just sort of part of you know that that world right or well and i was thinking about this um how you listen to music when i was young i don't know why this is a quirk of mine but i ira always teases me about this that i i would have a record and i would listen to one side over and over and over again and almost never hear the other side and then maybe like you know eight months later i wonder what this other side sounds like (laughs) and then be a slave to that side for a really long time so it is it wasn't necessarily side one i mean you just you pick one at random oh yeah i think in many cases whatever side i put on or you know who knows well it means you don't have to go to the bother of turning it over doesn't it you just sort of put it (laughs) right back back. to the start and go (laughs) kind of such an effort sometimes to turn that record over (laughs) right you were just ahead of your time you think of all those people who have never bothered to turn their cds over (laughs) right (laughs) you never you never discovered the abstract wonders on the other side Hi, this is Ira from Yolo Tango, and you're listening to the Mojo Record Club. Ira, kind of in many ways, the album that you've um, brought on to talk about today is kind of George's is one sort of, you know, rooted in the past and kind of in childhood. And this one seems is much more personal choice, much more sort of present choice and, you know, and made by people who you know and you knew so maybe you could sort of say what the record is that you've brought on to talk about today well i mean for for sad obvious reasons i've been thinking a lot about the clean uh since since hamish kilgour passed away and and there's kind of no band that's that's meant more to me oh maybe ever but certainly since since i you know, since they existed, but it's, it's kind of funny, you know, thinking about, you know, listening to Georgia talk about the whalers and, you know, the kinks were such a gigantic band for me in high school and kind of changed my, my life, I guess, to be over dramatic. And to think of, to think as I'm saying this, that, that, well, I guess the clean have really mattered to me as much as the kinks in, in a different way and at a different time. But, uh, but and 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 being so inspired by how great Mr. Pop is, this you know these these three guys who would get together and you know living in other parts of the world from each other and and hardly ever play and then just get back together and it didn't sound the same as last time, but it was instantly them and instantly unique as uniquely them and just uh, that record in particular i i it was you know like george i did some studying for this test and uh i was shocked <laughs> i didn't do enough <laughs> <laughs> but i was shocked to see how um middling the reception for that record was i couldn't i i i just thought everybody thought what i did that it was just i'm just i'm gonna step classic. in and say just for the sake of the listeners this is um an album that they that came out in 2009 isn't it and um so it's and i'm writing thinking 
it's the last time they got together as the clean so it's basically the last album they recorded isn't it that's right yeah and uh i mean i i don't know i i was i was listening to it again yesterday getting ready for this just marveling like every song on it is 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 different different and special and and you know and when hamish uh, you know i think hamish maybe only sings the one song the that takes me right back in the day but oh man it's it's just i i was gonna say it, it was heartbreaking to hear it but but that's how i felt the first time i heard it and when he was you know alive and well just it, it just so beautiful and and wistful in in that way that he he is not could be but is it's um one of the things that's in incredibly striking about the record is that it's an it's a record that seems to be going back to georgia repeat playing side one of records it's a record that seems built for repeat listening almost in kind of and the way in which kind of tracks are have this kind of comforting mantra like quality you know i mean obviously kind of people called the clean dream pop but the way in which there's you know this repeated phrases and kind of in circular structures to a lot of the songs and the one that I wanted to play on the show is um, In the Dream Life, You Need a Rubber Soul. That's so um, Yeah, so we'll play um, a little bit of that. This is In the Dream Life, You Need a Rubber Soul by The Clean on more music from 2009. If I can actually uh, interrupt, yeah, you know, you're talking about, you know, before we were talking about like this osmosis, and and the just the the offhand way that the clean have about kind of everything, and and the, the way that the uh, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones have just always kind of drifted through their material, like you know, there's there's hold on to the rail by the great unwashed, which, you know, they're talking about this Beatles and Stones and and even on on Mr. Pop, you know, I can't hear uh, "Factory Man" without thinking about "Factory Girl." Yeah, and 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 there's there was even another one. Oh, there, there's a isn't there was a David solo song of of not I don't know of some other vintage. You know which one I mean, Georgia? Oh, where he's, he's sing he's singing about the Beatles and the stones or I don't know. It's just, it's just yeah. there. And it's in that way that, you know, it's, it, it's in, it's in their blood and it just, so it kind of seeps out almost unconsciously. You feel like that's, what's so amazing to me about them is that it all feels unconscious and, and accidental, but, but perfect. When did you, I mean, cause obviously you, you played with them. When did you first meet them? Uh, Oh, 1989, I think. We were wow, on tour okay. in Europe and they were on tour. And we had heard, we had just learned about them recently before that. And then they came to New York and we, we were in Europe, so we missed the show. But then we found, we somehow we were in Amsterdam together and um, 
we went to their show. They were playing with and Chris uh, the Twelve Tours were opening. No, Chris Knox solo. Oh, solo, Chris solo. Okay. Um, and we went to the show, and then you know we had to like work up our nerve to go backstage to say hello, which was like ridiculous because how hard could that be? And we did, and it was great, and we got to be friends, and we we were all staying at the same hotel nearby that nico oddly was staying at at the same time wow <laughs> yeah and uh yeah afterwards we all went back to the hotel and decided we were gonna have cocoa i just love that part of the story <laughs> we didn't go out for a drink we just went back and that had was, hot that chocolate was that was obviously the nico influence on you <laughs> wasn't it because you know, nico obviously famous for her cocoa consumption <laughs> but our, our friend craig had had given us a a pre-recorded cassette of the uh clean compilation and we were just gaga over it like instantly like georgia says they they came to new york when we weren't here and i remember coming home from new york having discovered that they were coming to new york and we were going to miss them and i i'm in one of my delightful habits i made georgia guess who we were missing while we were in Europe. And uh, she looked at my face and saw how upset I was. And her first guess was the Velvet Underground. Which... <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, they are, there's a sense in which they are kind of, you know, they are kind of kindred spirits in a way to me as a, as a listener, I hear similarities. I mean, there's something kind of, you know, Hamish's distinctive kind of, clackety snare kind of playing and that kind of groove that they get into as well you know they kind of that sort of you know you know sort of very kind of diy motoric kind of groove that they get into there's a kind of there are points where i hear you as kindred artists yeah i think that's that's a hundred percent true there's there's even there's songs that we play that i often channel Hamish it's not the sounds the same but but my feeling is thinking about Hamish when I'm playing sometimes there was a period uh when when Georgia was playing guitar with uh the mad scene Hamish's the band that Hamish and his uh wife Lisa had and uh we're we're no seemingly nobody in that band wanted to play drums they all wanted to play other instruments so whoever got to the show last was forced <laughs> to be the drummer but it it was a remarkable thing to go see the mad scene and you'd see like hamish and georgia playing guitar and it was like wow there is there is no band in the world right now with better drummers not playing drums <laughs> and you um and you also i mean you play on their 2001 album don't you the previous album to uh, mr pop uh, getaway Is that right? yeah we yeah. we just happened to be uh we, i guess we had some shows in new zealand and we got there i i assume early to hang out in dunedin and, and i think that may have been when the the expressway festival was going on something i think we saw the dead sea at that that same week and and uh alistair galbraith um and they were recording and so we just asked if we could watch and they asked us to play so we were 
happy, more than happy to. And what were, they, what were they like to play with? How did they kind of bring you in and accommodate you, as it were? They, they I, we we did get to play with them on a, on a number of occasions. Oh, you know, we did live things yeah. with with them and with David and Hamish separately, and we because we toured together, and we would they would come up during our show, and it it was uh, actually I have I have a, a a memory of playing at Maxwell's, and I I don't remember if it's the clean. I don't know. I know Hamish is there, but it might be all of them. And we wanted to, we suggested doing uh, whatever I do is right. And so I was going to play the organ and, you know, I played the chords and Hamish had some notes on my sound. And then I did what he wanted and it was like, oh yeah, like that's, you know, just to just be part of their orbit part of their world was always uh a pleasure and uh surprising we we did a, a diff another tour where uh when david put out um i think it was sugar mouth uh he toured uh with hamish and lisa as his band and they got to one show and they were really tired it was, you know, long driving across the United States. And it was just, I guess, the four of them was, I can't remember now. What was that guy's name, Georgia? The the sound man they had? It wasn't Tex. Oh, oh right. It wasn't Tex. Yeah. Oh, I can't remember. Yeah. Anyway, they got to the show in Florida and they were beat. And they just played the, kind of the, the songs they did that night were not surprising, but they did them all at like two thirds speed. And I and I'm sure they didn't talk about it. They just they were just so themselves always that that's just what what came out. This just slow, dreamy version of of the repertoire they had come up with for that tour. It was another magical night with them. Is that kind of unforced way of making music and being able to adapt and and sort of turn on a dime like that? Is that something that you aspire to too? Could be. It certainly comes across that way, especially in live shows. Well, I, yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't know that we've explicitly said, you know, look at that and and done it that way. But, but I do think there is increasingly with us a, a willingness. You know, I was describing the Hanukkah shows to to allow the very random element to to come in and 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 get as far away from this is how the song goes. And if you hear it tonight this way, this is how you're going to hear it tomorrow. And to not only to not worry about that, but to you know celebrate that part of things. And I'm, I'm sure they have a huge impact on that with us. It's, it always comes across as, um, as a very particular individual kind of improvisation when you get into those zones live, especially. I mean, I, I think so. I mean, I, I, it's, it's funny the the notion of improvisation, because I think frequently it's, it's another, it's another word just that used as a synonym for solo, <laughs> but, but like in the case of, of that, that David Hamish Lisa show in Florida, 
you know, they just improvise an entire set by by cutting all the tempos, you know, and that to me was so profound that, you know, I do think it's the, it's the, the approach. I, I think our approach is frequently improvisatory, even when we're, even when I'm not shredding. <laughs> well, I was thinking more of the way you have uh, your instruments set out on stage, and it feels like you have options wherever you are in the set. You can you can divert to something else and play something else. That that it's set up where everything is more or less within reach. <laughs> Hopefully, <laughs> easier to trip over things that way. <laughs> I'm Georgia Hubley, and you're listening to the Mojo Record Club. Just going really going back to the choice of Mr. Pop, and you were saying kind of that it was, and I wonder whether that was kind of partly right. You chose it. You were just saying you kind of were surprised, disappointed by just kind of how it was just accepted as this kind of, oh, yeah, The Clean have made another album, and there wasn't really that sense of like, embracing how gen genuinely special an event that is but how genuinely great the album is as well well no i chose it and only discovered that after the fact so right. it, it was I, you know i think it was well partly because of just how much i love that record and and the fact that it was their last one i you know i think those things played into it but the um finding out that my feelings about it weren't universal was came that was a surprise i didn't know i was rescuing its reputation <laughs> i think it's nice that i mean normally kind of when you know we we do these podcasts there's a sense in which kind of i try and bring everything together at the end and kind of pull out sort of certain themes and everything and i think you might like the fact that i find that quite hard to do with this with the two albums here because they are sort of that, you know, obviously in terms of sort of, you know, why they were chosen and when they were chosen and the significance they have and the role that they have, they seem to occupy two very different worlds and kind yeah. of, uh, you know, which I kind of, I think is kind of quite fitting in a way for the two of you, you know, that you've chosen <laughs> these two records that, you know, kind of exist at, you know, sort of life extremes, but also influence. Ah, he said it again. He said the word influence. <laughs> um, but in terms of like kind of the role that they have in your in your lives, you know, one is very personal and present, and the other is kind of rooted in memory and childhood, and something that kind of doesn't need to be revisited because it exists as you know in memory. <laughs> well, it's funny, you know, doing this. I was like. I don't know how I don't even know how I'm going to talk about this record because I didn't really, you know, think I didn't watch other listen to other podcasts to see what people do, which seems, you know, why would you want to imitate yeah. what somebody else did? But um, but yeah, I think it is so subconscious, all this music stuff. I mean, it is music. It, it exists on that level that we kind of don't often talk about, where, as, as John said, it comes in almost kind of unbidden by osmosis and it just kind of gets in under your skin and sort of right. sits there we we do love music i know you can see this uh careful th these are not real records actually behind me these <laughs> it's are that, it's just that, a what, staged what, photo it's yeah. uh <laughs> um, but you know in in 2000 you know just a couple of years ago we <laughs> we did a 
a tour of England that we were able to invite uh, some people to augment our band. In fact, we had done it in the U.S., and David Kilgour was one of the people who joined us. We became a quintet with Mac McCon and David Kilgour, and then we went to England, and we got more more adventurous and you know instead of picking our friends who were clearly kindred spirits we ended up with uh neil innes and sonic boom and i th i think one of the things that was attractive to us about that lineup in, you know in addition to the obvious things that were attractive about it was that we uh flattered ourselves that there was only one only one way to connect those two people and that was through us <laughs> and 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 you know that these the two record choices we didn't we didn't consult with each other about what we were gonna pick we just you know came up with it and independently i do think the two of them go together in odd interesting ways for the reasons you're saying was that um was that Sonic Boom and Neil in a show? Was that at the South Bank Centre or somewhere like that? I seem to, I do remember going I think there. So yeah, yeah, the London one was, and then yeah. uh, because I mean we, you know, we just put out this uh, blind invitation to Neil Innes and were flabbergasted when he agreed, but he had a booking for one of the shows in country and. Um, so we had to get somebody else to do, I think it was Brighton. So we asked Robin Hitchcock to do that one. <laughs> and then for London, we had all three of them. So the London, the London show right. at the Royal Festival Hall ended up being Robin, Neil, and Sonic Boom. Robin, one of our previous guests on the podcast, actually. Yeah. Which clean record did he pick? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he picked he, Country Joe and the Fish, didn't he? Yeah, he, he, oh, picked, electric, oh, wow. he picked Electric yeah. Music for Mind and Body, yeah. Wow. <laughs> Guys, this has been an absolute joy, and um, I love the fact that we've kind of concluded that, you know, on, only Ira and Georgia, only Yola Tango could have brought these two records together. I think that's, <laughs> um, that's very special and a, and, a nice, um, and a nice note to end on. Thank you both so much. I really okay. enjoyed it. It's an absolute um, honor to have you on the show and um, thoroughly enjoyable. Thank Thanks. you so much. And thank you for listening to the Mojo Record Club. Right, John, I now have you all to myself after saying goodbye to uh, the lovely Georgia and Ira. So I suppose the question I need to ask you is what new record have you been listening to this week? Um, it's a bit embarrassing this week, Andrew, uh, because the record I want to talk about is one I had a hand in making. It's, um, it's, it's the CD that comes with the current issue of Mojo, and it's uh, Bob Dylan's sampler with the pretty self-explanatory title of 14 Hidden Gems from the Bootleg Series 1963 to 1997. If you haven't been keeping count, and I'm sure one or two of you hopefully have been, there have been 17 editions of the bootleg series now, which means there have been 17 major raids on the Dylan archives over the past 32 years since the series began. The idea with RCD was to offer a sampler of all these uh, amazing archive collections. These collections, I suppose, which show that 
key Dylan aspect of his songs being in continuous flux is maybe quite a nice way of putting it or quite a waffly way of putting it, we'll see. But that that sense that, that his songs never have fixed coordinates, that there's never a master version of them, in spite of how much we might venerate Blonde on Blonde or um, another Dylan album, I've forgotten all the names of uh, Dylan records all of a sudden, or Time Out of Mind. So on the, on our uh, compilation, we've got alternate versions of Oh Mercy and John Wesley Harding tracks. We've got a lost song from the Basement Sessions. We've got demos from as early as 1963. We've got a fantastic live couple of live tracks from the Rolling Thunder Review. And we've also got a couple of tracks from the brand new volume 17 of the Bootleg series, Fragments, which revisits the late 90s sessions for Time Out of Mind. One thing they've done on Fragments is that they peel back some of the atmospherics that producer Daniel Lenoir led over Dylan's songs. And I guess at the time we thought that that was making them kind of quite spooked and a degree of ambience and a certain sense of the uncanny as Dylan appeared to be grappling with mortality um, as he reached the grand old age of being in his mid-50s, which seems hilarious now. But, but what these new mixers which have stripped that back do is that they show a more profound and more innate kind of spectral quality to these songs i think which aligns stuff like lovesick to the way that dylan's most recent songs on rough and rowdy ways sound this this kind of uh, x-ray of the blues almost we should probably play a little bit of that remarkable um version of lovesick it kind of you're right it's kind of it's stripped back it's kind of haunting and it does kind of feel incredibly close to the contemporary sound that dylan has at the moment let's play a little bit of that remarkable new stripped back haunted version of lovesick by bob dylan on columbia records i'm sick of love Trying to forget you Just don't know what to do I'd give anything to be with you John, that's the thing that fascinates me about this aspect of, of, of Dylan, the Dylan narrative that he kind of now exists in these kind of simultaneous parallel universes. You've got kind of present day Dylan and you've got past Dylan and you can kind of dip into either, you know, and, and kind of at, at the same time as kind of having these two lives, they kind of, they also add historical depth to Dylan's career. His fans can feel like archivists poring over lost manuscripts. And this may not be the right word, but it's almost like a kind of microtonal Bob, because it's Bob glimpsed in between the standard intervals. You know, you kind of have the recognized record releases, and then you can go inside in between them and find all these other versions that exist beyond that. And it kind of, I mean, the thing is as well, it, I mean, he himself obviously said, I contain multitudes very recently in quoting, um, as we said, Walt Whitman. Um, but 
it's true you know there is a, it, it kind of it keeps kind of he keeps splitting into twos and then fours and then eights you know and kind of and multiplying and one of the things that you know w- without wanting to join in the kind of you know mutual mojo backslapping about this record but it does feel like a real service i was listening to it today and because of the vastness of the project i think that more and more people will start doing this thing where they curate their sort of you know favorite one cd versions across all of the bootlegs there's so much of it and i mean um dylan's people put it together for us i should in in spirit of full disclosure it wasn't our curated selection ourselves but it's like i own most of those bootlegs and um bootleg series i should say it's like i couldn't remember that version of it ain't me babe from the rolling thunder one and it's fantastic i mean the whole just that sense of what an incredible band but i think going back to the point you were making your microtonal bob idea it's like (laughs) i think i think the whole thing i think two things really one is that it allows him new places to hide so so even as he's giving us more he's allowed to show us less simultaneously which i think is 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 quintessential stealth bob really which is always frustrating and admirable but at the same time i would say that i thought i'm less frustrated about all of this than i used to be a few years ago really because i think i think or i hope certainly that a bunch of dylan discourse has moved on and that we accept these multiple lives and these multiple narrative strands and this complexity and we embrace it yeah. rather than just trying to find what's he on about what's what's the ur text what's the meaning it's like now we now we kind of welcome that confusion and yeah, that density it's a right. big step in in a kind of a fundamental change in the way that we think about dylan which yeah. i would say has been precipitated in some degree by the bootleg series itself it's it's quite freeing you know you're kind of yeah, saying, it really you is, know yeah. you just kind of you give yourself up to the vastness of the bob universe totally, yeah yeah but at the same time i should i should also in my uh, in my role as uh, mojo marketeer say that the uh, the story that grayson haver curran wrote about the time out of mind sessions which is the cover story in the issue uh, Mojo 352 um, with the CD on the front cover is is an amazing glimpse of Dylan in the studio and exactly yeah. how it worked and the dynamic and there's a remarkable at the core of the piece there's a remarkable interview with Daniel Lenoir which is 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 this kind of wounded romantic myth of trying to work with Dylan and trying to and actually trying to go head to head with an aesthetic sensibility which which doesn't really align with what he's doing and try and try to broker some kind of compromise with bob fucking dylan you yeah. know it's like it's ridiculous but i think that the, you know the point that you're making is that kind of yeah the, there was a time wasn't there where you know even i suppose like with you know with lamoir there was there was a period where there was an attempt to either crack or understand or contain what bob dylan was and kind of yeah. you know and sort of and place him on a certain path and go you know if we if we put you know Lanwell saying if we put you down this route we might be able to contain the vastness and now right. there is that sense in which we kind of yeah we just kind of accept now that that is a, a futile project 
this is why songs sound different every night. I mean, not not that they are ironically not that they are doing it at the moment. You know, one of the one of the strange miracles of uh, the Rough and Rowdy Ways tour when it landed in London uh, last year, and and actually for most of the dates when I've heard boots of them and that kind of bit, uh, unofficial bootlegs, I should say, rather than official bootlegs, is that there's a, a an unusual consistency in the way that he was actually playing the songs compared with the sort of free range that he usually takes over and that capricious need to do something different with them every night. Um, there were, he was more consistent. But but that change, that constant flux, is kind of... It's 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 a core to a understanding him or as close to understanding him as we have been, as we are ever going to get, that, it, that his main artistic imperative is not to stay still yeah. and not to be able to be captured. Absolutely. Perfectly put. Okay, my record of the week is The Candle and the Flame, which is the new solo record by Australian singer-songwriter and former go-between Robert Forster. This is his eighth studio LP, and I think it's one of his finest. It's a record kind of suffused in memory, in family, in nostalgia and the present. And um, there's an incredibly powerful video on YouTube for the song She's a Fighter, which is kind of this simple two-line song about his wife Karen's battle with cancer. And Foster has said, because the song had so much meaning to us, we decided to record it as a family, which is the only time that this happens on the album. Karen sings and plays xylophone. Our daughter Loretta plays electric guitar. Our son Louis plays guitar, bass, and percussion. And I strum an acoustic guitar fiercely, and I sing. And in the video, you see Karen and Robert, along with the kids, uh, Louise and Loretta, playing the song together in the round. And I found it an incredibly simple but incredibly moving piece of footage. It's kind of like the song itself. It's powerful and defiant, but it's kind of like a song reduced to its most basic elements. As I say, there's only kind of two lines of lyrics in it. So I thought we could maybe play a little bit of that. It's um, She's a Fighter by Robert Forster and released on Tapeta Records. It's a lovely record, isn't it? Uh, it? It's kind of, it's funny. I think, I think even before this record, I think Robert has been a lot more confident about displaying his sentimentality yeah. in, in his music. And as, um, I guess, I guess when I was a student, um, the go-betweens were probably my favourite band and they still are one of my favourite bands. But uh I think I got them completely wrong. I always thought that uh, uh, Grant McLennan was the very uh, um, humble, quiet, sentimental, down-to-earth one. And Robert, because of the way he presented so often, was the flamboyant, desperate-to-be-a-rock-star, uh, arty, dis- you know, dislocated kind of uh, standoffish one. And when I did meet them in the 90s, I kind of found out it was the opposite way around, really. And that Robert is a very touching and warm 
and uh, kind of easygoing, however uptight he sometimes appeared, whereas Grant was the one who was quite uh, edgy. And, yeah, um, I mean, I, I, uh, interv- I met them as well and I interviewed them as well. And, you know, Grant was combative. And yeah. Grant would basically kind of like, you had to come in and you had to prove yourself within the arena of Grant. All the while, Robert is going asking you, if you like whether you want a cup of tea, yeah, exactly, yeah. and going, "Hi, how are you doing, Andrew? Is everything yeah. okay? You're having a nice day." And then Grant would be off in the corner, kind of bristling and kind of pacing. And then you would say, you would possibly say something that would kind of click with Grant and clue him into the fact that you weren't a complete idiot. And then he would approach you and sort of yeah. be willing, willing to talk to you. Yeah, and and. Uh... I think uh, the, Robert's delivery is so historically arch, and yeah. the way that he uh, mythologizes even quite banal things makes it seem like he he has a that he exists at one removed from them. And actually, I think this record hammers home the point once again that actually he isn't being ironic and he isn't being banal. He's being deadly serious and emotionally direct in the way that he communicates. Yeah. And I mean, it's like, uh, one thing I was going to mention, obviously he's a big Dylan fan. Um, He wrote a a brilliant piece of criticism about one of the Dylan records from a few years ago. I think it may have been Tempest. I can't remember which one, Um, which was really interesting. He he wrote a lot about how um, Dylan as an arranger always and as a producer always gets his band start and stop at the same time that there isn't very much light and shade when he gets a band it's like he he sets them off he lets them play for five minutes and then they all stop together no one drops in or out there's kind of there's no dynamic it's that kind of roadhouse heads down sort of uh, way of doing things which I don't think it's the case anymore. I'm not sure it ever was the case to some degree, but certainly in some of those, uh, um, some of those early 2000s or, or mid 2000s records, it, there was that vibe a little bit more. But the other thing I was going to say is his personal reminiscences on records. One of the things when we interviewed him for uh, a recent Mojo interview was that he um, he mentioned or Ian Harrison, who interviewed um, him, mentioned the song Darling Hearst Nights, which was on the last Go-Betweens record. It's mm. a wonderful song. Yeah. And and um, there's a song, there's a line in there uh, about uh, where he mentioned someone called Susie, who we never saw again. And um, and Ian, Ian said, whatever happened to Susie? And, and Robert said, well, she was a kind of a vintage clothes dealer. And Dylan came through town and wanted to get in touch with someone who could fix him up with some new stage clothes. So she went to, uh, you know, do that and left with the Dylan entourage. And as as far as Robert knows, has been Dylan's kind of personal dresser ever since. It's, in many ways, that is like the perfect Robert Forster anecdote because it's like somebody he, he knows in his peripheral world is pulled into the Dylan entourage and then yeah. kind of is whisked off and yeah. Robert is left standing, <laughs> kind of, you know, somewhat bereft and yet yeah. kind of, an, an, but always the one attempting to kind of catch something of that kind of, that dazzle. That there's, a great, there's a great romance, but there's also, I think, and you can track, 
you can track this through his solo records through the 90s as well. Like he starts off his solo career with an album called Danger in the Past. Yeah. Or Danger in the Past, where Past. where yeah. ma magnificently he's dressed. He, he poses in an exact replica of a James Joyce photo on the front cover. So that's the level of, of archness and amused pretension or, or self-parodying self, self idea of pretension, I think, but which I think he's so the, good at. But I think the joy and the, the joy with him is kind of that, and I think, you know, kind of it's, it's one of those things that, you know, which I think we kind of talk about more often now, the fact that you realise that you've been following artists for you know a period of time that you were never previously able to follow pop artists for because you know it yeah. was kind of this this fleeting kind of career and you realize that you're able to you know certainly with someone like robert you know you kind of been able to follow him since the early 80s and watch this kind of this this evolution this change and also this shedding of you know of, of this carapace of archness and everything and this shedding of kind of details and aspects that he puts on which i think is one of the reasons why this current album is so enjoyable because you know you know you almost kind of see completely divested of that in a way yeah and you also and you also see the songs that he's recorded in some cases 30 odd years ago in a different light yeah. because you think that something like german farmhouse is a song about domestic contentment yes you know there's no spin there it's no. just about it's just about his life, and, yeah. and you can pick a document of the, the the kind of satisfactions and contentments of of domestic life through the past thirty years of Robert Forster records, of which this is this very moving culmination, I guess. Thank you so much, John. Um, I think it's basically time to say um, thank you to Ira Kaplan, Georgia Hubley, John Mulvey. And thank you from myself, Andrew Mayle. That was the Mojo Record Club. Uh, we hope to see you at the next one. You can all join in. And please look in the episode description for full details of all the tracks we played and how to sign up for the next episode. You've been listening to the Mojo Record Club. More? <laughs> Helpful monkey wallpapers entire home. <laughs>